0: Mark chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 27 this morning. And let's read the word of God together. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came to him and said, teacher, We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to test Bring me the denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And then the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. The passage, or the passages in front of us this morning, give us two different stories between Jesus and his opponents. Probably opponents is too nice of a word. I think we might as well flat out say enemies. The reason we would say enemies is that they truly were conspiring to kill him. But this morning we have in front of us two stories about Jesus and his opponents. Let me ask you the question. Have you heard of this saying, the enemy of my enemy is my, complete the sentence. What is it? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. All right, we understand this simple saying, and it's when we have an enemy or an opponent, and we find out that somebody else shares the same enemy, and then we share something in common. What we have in common is we are both against this one person, and we're both against... Uh, we would both profit together if this person was no longer our enemy. So the scriptures we have in front of us today and in the coming weeks, I can't think of a better description than this simple phrase. What we are going to see in this week, but also next week, right on the heels of the parable of the tenants, is that Jesus' opponents are going to conspire together. And they're going to conspire together, and they're going to begin to bombard Jesus with difficult questions, much like what we saw today. Jesus was a problem. In fact, he was a growing problem. And the leaders of Israel, if you notice where we left off last week, and let me just actually read the passage. If you weren't here last week, you'll have to go back and read for yourself, but we looked at a parable. It's called the Parable of the Tenants, and I'll just summarize like this. Jesus set their hair on fire. They left Jesus telling of the parable as angry as they could possibly have been because what they recognized was the parable was about them. I'll leave that for you to go unpack. You'll probably need to do some reading or some research if you weren't here last week on the parable of the tenants. But last week in Mark 12, 12, it says this, and they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people for they perceived he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Did you notice that how our passage began was, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in his talk. Last week we ended with the desire to kill him. This week we begin with the fact that there has been something happening in between. That something happening in between is that Jesus' enemies have now conspired together and they're now all going to work together to eliminate Jesus. I don't know if you follow history at all, but have you ever watched in uh, kind of when you look at history past, when two enemies would fight, they would literally line up together, this idea of honor. You have two, two uh, warring enemies, but you would literally line up right in front of each other. Uh, and you would know exactly who your enemy is, uh, and there was some kind of, in a sense, honor in war, and you would fight that enemy in front of you, and the better army won. We also know that there is such a thing called guerrilla warfare, where you no longer worry about lining up in front. Guerrilla warfare is basically you're an opportunist. You hide, and you take shots at your enemy, and then you disappear where you came from. What we see in front of us today is much more like the guerrilla warfare. Pharisees are going to come at Jesus. The Herodians are going to come at Jesus. The Sadducees are going to come at Jesus. And they're all going to find ways to try to attack him. So what I want to think about this morning, I want to just plant one seed in your mind. I want you to think about today is why did Jesus' opponents reject him? We see some arguments that they bring, but the little seed I want to plant, and we're going to come back and we're going to take a look at this at the end, is I want you to be thinking about why did Jesus' opponents reject him? And here's our outline for this morning as we look at Jesus and his opponents. We just have two instances. Verses 13 to 17, we see Jesus and the Pharisees and the Herodians. Verses 18 to 27, we're going to see Jesus and the Sadducees. And when we look at these two texts, here is what we're going to ask. What was the trap? What was Jesus' response? What can we learn? Simple little outline here. We're going to take a look at these two separate instances. There's an instance between the Pharisees and the Herodians. There's an instance between the Sadducees. We want to ask three questions. What was the trap they were laying? What was Jesus' response? And what can we learn? And once again, the idea that I want to put or place in your mind is asking these questions, what was Jesus' opponents or, or a, a reason to reject him? All right? Everybody clear? Getting some head shakes, all right? We're all, all with the plan moving forward. So let's begin verses 13 to 17, Jesus and the Pharisees and Herodians. Now, before we jump in and answer our questions... Let me just talk about who the Pharisees and Herodians were. You might be familiar with them, you might not be. This might be brand new. But the Pharisees and the Herodians are certainly an odd couple. We've seen them paired a couple times in the scriptures. In fact, earlier in Mark, we see the Herodians and the Pharisees conspiring together. And when they're conspiring together, they're they're conspiring together to take down Jesus, well, let me tell you about this very interesting team that has come together. The Herodians were a group who supported King Herod. It's really that simple. That's where the name comes from. There is, at this time, in the the, the area of Jerusalem, but also of Israel. They're under Roman rule, but there's a man named Herod who has been appointed to be the, the leader for the Romans. So the Herodians would have been the group of those Jews at this time who were pro-Herod. So they were for Herod being in power. And there's a really big reason. I don't think you have to guess. It happens the same way today. That Whenever we have politicians, we have those who have form these packs to be the politicians' friends, right? When when you are one of the supporters of those in power, guess what? You get benefits. You get benefits of influence, of funds, of positions by supporting those in power. So the Herodians, very specifically, were those Jews who had aligned themselves not so much with the Jewish faith, but had aligned themselves with the ruler placed over them, Herod. This is who the Herodians are they're opportunists. They're those who are are typically wealthier, and they're those who have much to benefit by Herod being in power. And so they uh, they would have uh, approved basically all that Herod did, and they wanted their their, uh, fellow Jews to also support Herod and any uh, politics or any decisions that he made. Pharisees, there couldn't be two more unlike groups. And it's so strange that we would see them together. Literally, partnering together to come and take on Jesus. The Pharisees primarily resided in Jerusalem. Pharisees were divided into three schools. And much like today, uh, it's interesting how history almost always repeats itself. We had three groups of Pharisees. You had those who were conservative in interpretation of the law. You had those who were liberal in interpretation of the law. And you had those who were kind of center. The ones who were conservative followed a a rabbi named Shammai. The ones who were liberal followed a rabbi named Hillel. Hillel has a grandson named Gamaliel. In fact, this is the one that Paul studied underneath. And he was known for his wisdom, but he kind of played the middle ground. Here's what you need to know about the Pharisees. The Pharisees really were interested on impacting ordinary Jewish tradi- Jewish life by disseminating their teachings and traditions. Remember all the talk in the New Testament about the washing of hands and the washing of bowls, right? And what goes in a man uh, when Jesus uh, teaches against them? It's it's what goes. Uh, it's not what comes out of a man, or excuse me, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him. It's what comes out. Jesus is teaching against the teaching of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are really well known. These are the two groups that come to Jesus. Those who are, are actively supporting the law and, and giving teachings for the people to follow. And we have the Herodians. Now, let's move forward and let's talk a look at the trap. What are these two groups doing and coming together? Well, the trap was really about a tax. It's about a tax paid to Caesar. That, re, that was their question, right? They say to Jesus, should we be paying taxes to Caesar? They want, a, they want a definitive yes or no answer because as soon as Jesus gives this answer, he aligns himself with one party. Well, I, we're going to say that I think all is good. Uh, no yes, there is no crying. That was very loud noise and we're going to keep plowing ahead trusting that our workers have things all going on here. Uh, Paying taxes to Caesar. No, it's not easy standing up here preaching, folks. There's a lot of things that come at you, including loud noises from the back that all, that all of a sudden you've got to stay in your notes here. Uh, the question was, try to divide Jesus. Now, you guys saw in the text, Jesus had an amazing answer. He basically says, there's a, there's a coin called a denarius. Now, we have coins these days, and on most coins, there is something printed on the coin. Uh, and the coin will have two sides, and the coin might have some kind of uh, identifiable um, landmark, or it might have a, a, the mark of the leader of the time. I still remember as a kid growing up, George Washington, for, for me in the U.S., was on the quarter. Abraham Lincoln was on the, uh, the uh, um, what's a, uh, penny. Yes, there we go. Thank you. I was going to say five cents, but uh, that wasn't even true. Um, so, but I still remember, and this is what Jesus does. So Jesus asks for denarius, and he gets it, and he says, whose picture is on here? And it was Caesar's. And so Jesus gives an answer that says, listen, this is Caesar's coin. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. And he gives this amazing answer where everybody was stunned because they thought for sure it was going to be a yes or a no. And Jesus is—he gives the yin, right? The in-between, the yes and the no. And with this, this imperial tax, you had the, the Herodians, which said, yes, you should pay the tax. Why? They supported Herod, and therefore, they're basically doing everything that the government asks. You had the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually against the tax, but they're coming together to test Jesus. The Pharisees were against the tax, not included in this story, and a group that you may have heard of, the Zealots were so against paying the tax that they were trying to fight and rebel and basically form their own nation. They were fighting against Rome, and they were hoping that by Jesus' answer, he would align himself with one of these groups. And so, it's it's basically, it's kind of divide and conquer. Let's figure out where his allegiances lie, and then we can begin to chop away and get rid of this guy. So that was the trap. They're hoping, and, and by the way, this is, I think, a trap today. How many times does politics come into faith and religion? All the time, right? And Jesus also is going to help us see something beautiful about this. We'll get there in a second. But as I mentioned, Jesus' answer was simply, give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God's what's God's. What can we learn about this? Just two simple points. When we think about what we can learn as we look at Jesus' interaction with his opponents, the first thing is this Jesus wisely avoids needless debate. This is why I just referenced <laughs> politics and the Christian faith. Jesus wisely avoids needless debates. I find it interesting, I don't know, when somebody asks you a question, what is your, your first inclination? I know mine, and that's not to think or ask a question. Mine is the answer. And Jesus, instead of answering, asks a question. Now there's a proverb, Proverbs 26, 4-5, and it says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him. And it seems like Jesus so often employs this in his daily interactions. Where when people come looking for answers, Jesus doesn't feel the need to step into the debate. Jesus was so single-minded and so focused on his desire to come and actually address the real issue, which was our sin issue, that Jesus doesn't worry about aligning himself with all the things that we could. And just think about this. You know and I know. Have you ever stepped in, right in the middle of it as, as you with friends are trying to talk about subjects that everybody holds really tightly and dearly and, and really gets offended by? Right? Right? Have, have you ever like, walked right in the middle of that, not thinking about uh, what's, what's really at stake? And, it, and is this something that I need to certainly get divisive over? I'm not saying not sharing the truth in love, but I'm saying, have you ever just entered a debate for a debate and you recognize halfway through, this is, this is really dumb. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty stupid right now because I walked right in to just an argument for an argument's sake. Have you, done, have you been there? Have you done that? where there's really nothing on the line. You just find yourself randomly arguing about stuff for no reason, and neither one wants to really admit the other is right or wrong. And what Jesus is so wise in doing is that Jesus so often sees the trap of getting in debates and just avoids things that are not important. And Jesus does employ Proverbs 26, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Now, there's an interesting counterpart to this proverb, and it's verse 5, which we'll share on the next, uh, the next point, when we talk about the Sadducees. But just mark, Jesus doesn't feel the need to enter into every debate. And maybe just as a simple application, neither should you. There's some things that are not worth arguing about. Number two... The second thing we can learn, Jesus rejects the either-or approach. We often think that obligations to God and to state maybe are necessarily in conflict. And Jesus doesn't pit state versus God, which is pretty amazing. And he does it in a really amazing way, a simple way. So Jesus doesn't take an either-or approach. And just so you know, in life, maybe you can also benefit from that wisdom, is that not all of life is exactly an either-or approach that pits you against those that you work with, or you as husband and spouse, or as parent versus child. I think we often participate in its winner-take-all kind of relationship, where I have to be right, you have to be wrong. But Jesus rejects either approach. And just if you're interested, I I don't have the time to go there today because this message is really not about politics. We focus on the scriptures, but I do want to talk to you because this is really a question about what, what should be done. They ask about taxes, and Jesus basically says, give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what's God's. But just to give you two points of reference, every train has two tracks that keep it moving forward. I want to just give you two points to think about the scriptures and government and how those intersect. I want to give you two scriptures to take home and you could chew on this a little bit later but here's one side of the tracks. Acts 5, 29, Peter says we must obey God rather than men. The first side of the track is we obey God. Our first... And primary responsibility is what God has said is true, we call true, and we live for. The second side of the tracks comes from Romans 13. It's 13, to 7. I won't read the whole passage, but it says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is why Jesus can say, what's on the coin? Is it Caesar's? Give it to Caesar. That's Tax. Now, did Jesus dive into the argument whether it was fair tax, whether it was, it, they were being taken advantage of, whether being oppressed? I'm sure all that was true. Right? But Jesus simply understands what is important to talk about right then and there. So I'll give you those two sides of the tracks. Obey God rather than men. And here's the, the fact of the matter. There will be some rules of a nation that coincide with the, what God says is right. There also will be some rules and laws that... that contradict what God says is right, and our allegiance is to God. It's that simple. But also we have to recognize is that every government, even corrupt governments, are not terrible. They're God-ordained, and there's this God-given purpose, and we have to balance in between. I won't go any further, but let me just stop there. So we took a look at what was the trap? It was this tricky thing about taxes. What was Jesus' answer? Give me the coin. What's on the picture? Give to Caesar what's his. Give to God what's his. What can we learn? Avoid needless debates. And don't always believe that it's, it's an either-or approach. I think those are two sound principles we can take away from looking at how Jesus deals with his opponents. I also gave you two sides of the track. Looking at obeying God, but also recognizing that, uh, rather than government, but God has established the government. Let's take a look at the Sadducees. And let's take a look at Jesus' interaction with the Sadducees. Now, before we begin, we've got to start with a who again. We've learned about the Herodians already. We've learned about the Pharisees. Let me tell you about the Sadducees. The Sadducees of all the groups uh, in in Israel at this time were the smallest. And they were the most elite or, in a sense, selective. They represented property-owning, kind of urban class that lived basically only in Jerusalem. They were numerically very small, but they had unbelievable political influence. The reason they had such political influence is because of their positions and their wealth. They were primarily from priestly families that oversaw the temple. And by the way, remember going back, if we were to rewind, when Jesus came to the temple? Remember that day when he wreaked havoc in the temple markets? Guess who Jesus was messing with and all of their investments and assets? The Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones who controlled uh, or the temple. They, they were the, the the wealthy priestly class. And let me just tell you, it was an exclusive club. We have clubs today, right? You you know that there are clubs that the average person just doesn't get to be a part of, right? There, there, there are things that are only for the elites. There are toys in this life, yachts and cars and certain clubs and owning your own plane that are certainly only for an elite class. Well, guess what? Israel had those too. And if there was that class at this time, it was the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were this exclusive club. Two things you need to know about the Sadducees is that this, this passage tells us they rejected Israel the resurrection. They didn't believe in it. And by the way, they also rejected angels. So you understand a little bit about who they were in society and their wealth, and you also understand a little bit about their teaching. And if you look at their question, they come to Jesus asking about whether there can be any resurrection. By the way, I'll tell you a grandpa joke. My grandpa told me this, so it truly is a grandpa joke. I've never forgotten it. Uh, and it was to help me understand Sadducees and what it meant. My grandpa always said, by the way, he was a pastor. And so it's also an a old pastor joke. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. If you remember that corny joke, you will never forget who the Sadducees were. You think of, I remember Sam and his grandpa joke. I have never forgotten it, and I tell it uh, only because when you read the scriptures... It is hard at times to think of who are these people, the, Sa- the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians. Herodians are pretty easy. They supported Herod, and they benefited politically. The, the, the Pharisees were those who were supportive of the law, three different groups, and they were very much into the outward keeping of the law. The Sadducees were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. There's more to that. They were also the wealthy priestly class. All right, so that's the Sadducees. What was the trap? Well, did you get lost? As I was trying to read that passage, we start with one guy getting married. His wife dies, or he dies, his, he has a widow. She gets married again to his brother. He dies, she lives, he gets married again to his brother. And they say this happens seven times. When you read it, were you thinking, what in the world does this even mean? It was a tricky, confusing question. And that was the point. Here's where the question comes from. In the Old Testament, Moses, and notice they said, Moses said, in Deuteronomy 25, there's a very specific law, and that law was to protect the name uh, and the property of, uh, of a man in Israel. Remember, the promised land was uh, divided between 12 tribes, and every clan was giving property, and to, to every person was giving property. The way that Israel maintained that, and it was very important, was that when a father would have a son, the property and what he was given, what was his possession in the promised land, would pass to that first son. And so his name was kept alive, and the property stayed in the family. And the property was, was one of the primary ways that you provided for yourself or your family. It's, it's what prevented pro- poverty. And so it was really significant that property would stay within the family. And so in Deuteronomy 25, there was a specific uh, uh, rule that God had given that if if a man has a brother who's married and he dies and he has no kids. That the biblical provision was that that man's brother would provide an heir for the widow without a son. And so it would maintain the family line. And that son would not be considered his brothers, it would be, consi- uh, it would be considered the brothers that died. The, that widow would have an heir. That was the original text they're referring to. And man, did they get crazy and tricky. And they said, hey, seven times a brother dies. Seven times the widow lives. And the big tricky question is that they think they're going to get nailed Jesus to the wall. And they say, so, and by the way, they don't believe in the resurrection, right? So they think, we got it. We got him trapped. How does he answer this? So they give him their question. Here it is. We go through the whole question seven times. And now the lady dies, and she still has no kids. Whose wife is she in heaven, is basically their question. And that, they think, well, how's he going to answer that? Well, maybe it's the first the first husbands. Maybe it's the last husbands. Well, maybe, maybe if they had a kid, it, it would be so much simpler, because it would be the husband of the guy who had the kid. Once again, Jesus answers masterfully. So we see the question or the trap. The question was to ask a long, complicated question that they didn't think Jesus could answer. And here's Jesus' answer. My simple summary is, Jesus feeds them a wrong sandwich. What's a wrong sandwich? Jesus starts with, you're wrong. And he ends with, you're quite wrong. And in between, there was, there was, there was a lot of learning. Jesus is going to address their question. Remember I said Proverbs 26? There was two passages. The first one was, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. That's what Jesus does in the first passage. He basically doesn't answer the question. Do you know what Proverbs 26, 5 says? Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In this passage, Jesus specifically answers them, and he tells them, you're wrong. And Jesus is going to tell them they're wrong for two reasons. Those reasons are, number one, they don't know the scriptures. And number two, they don't know the power of God. The first thing, they don't know the scriptures. But I told you the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. They also did not believe in angels. The Sadducees very specifically only believed in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books. They rejected everything else. And so Jesus says, hey, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures. And he gives this amazing illustration. Jesus could have actually picked many other passages, but he he picks something from the Pentateuch. He goes to Exodus. He goes to Exodus uh, 3, where God is going to reveal his nature. And Jesus says, you don't know the scriptures, which is just another way of saying you lack knowledge or you're ignorant of the truth. And he tells them why. Why? The example he gives, when Moses is at the burning bush, right? And Moses is standing in front of them, and and Moses is wrestling with who is God, and and what is his identity. He sees this bush burning in the desert. Remember, if you remember the story, Moses looks off in the distance, and he sees basically a tree on fire, and it's not being consumed. So I'm I'm guessing he's out there shepherding, and he's been watching this for a long time, and thought, that tree's been on fire for forever forever and it's still on fire. It, 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 is, it is not being consumed. So out of interest, he goes up to the tree, and he quickly realizes that God is revealing himself through this burning bush. And during that time, God reveals himself, and God reveals himself as, I, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus very clearly makes the point God cannot be the God past tense of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had said to Moses, he was the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, at that time they were dead. So the fact that Jesus uses, or God used a present tense to reveal himself to Moses, Jesus says, listen, you guys don't know the basic scriptures. You say you don't believe in the resurrection. You, you say there's no life after death. But when God reveals himself to Moses in the Pentateuch, which is the only thing you believe, and it is is the foundational revelation of who God is, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense. What does that mean? It means they were resurrected and living. And he's also revealing himself as the I am to Moses. So, That's Jesus' first answer. You don't know the scriptures. The second was, you don't know the power of God. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. They limit the power of God to their own limited human ability to understand. It's basically God in a box. When you say you don't understand the power of God, here's how you relate to God. You basically reject everything you don't understand in your own human wisdom because it would be inconvenient, uncomfortable, or difficult to believe the things that God says about him in your own human understanding. It's God in the box. Basically, this is my understanding. This is my human brain. This is what I can comprehend. And anything outside of that, I reject about God. Which is what a lot of people do. Rejecting miracles, rejecting creation, rejecting uh, God as being sovereign, rejecting God as being all-knowing, rejecting God as uh, saying, not only is he love, but recognizing, well, what about all the sin? It's basically, when I come to a problem that I don't understand, I reject anything I don't believe with my own human understanding. So Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. What can we learn from Jesus? Here's what we can learn. Two practical things. And then we're going to come to our close, and we're going to look at the seed that I planted about uh, why, or Jesus' opponents rejected him. What can we learn? Number one, Jesus directly addresses wrong belief. I don't know about you, but probably one of the most difficult things we do in this life is to address issues, or uh, because we avoid conflict, right? Jesus directly addresses wrong belief. I told you he fed them a wrong sandwich. He actually begins by saying you are wrong and he finishes by saying you are quite wrong. We have to have a box in our Christian existence or in our marriage or in our parenting or with our colleagues where we lovingly address things that are wrong. Notice I didn't say take a sledgehammer. Notice I didn't say you're free to say anything. Notice I didn't say you're free to be hurtful. But here's what I know. Jesus doesn't skirt around the issue. He directly addresses wrong belief. And I think that's something, a practical thing that we all could learn from. Is that when we come face to face with things that are... And this, by the way, what I didn't say was differences of opinion. Right? This isn't differences of opinion. Jesus directly confronts wrong belief about the Scriptures. And I, I need you to understand that difference, right? So I'm not saying be divisive. I'm not saying go to work and anything you disagree with, man, let them know. Hit them in the chops. <laughs> you, you don't, you, this is your right. <laughs> what I'm saying is, Jesus directly addresses wrong belief. And the reason that is loving, because wrong belief, there, there's a, the Proverbs tells us, there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Wrong belief leads to building a life on the wrong foundation. And it is actually loving to address wrong belief. The second thing we do is, how did Jesus address wrong belief? And this is another thing that we often, we often debate based upon our feelings or based upon our differences of opinion. How did Jesus address wrong belief? From the scriptures. He went straight to the scriptures and he gave an example about Moses and the burning bush. And he says, this is why your belief not only about the resurrection, but also he, he adds in angels. He says, you believe wrongly because you're ignorant and you don't know the power of God. And he addresses their wrong belief from the scriptures. So pair those two together. If we are going to love each other, here, here's the facts. I know this. I know I don't have every answer. I know you don't have every answer. And the job that we have together as a community is that we would be actively always pursuing correct belief. Because wrong belief is dangerous. Wrong belief leads to sin. Wrong belief leads to a wrong foundation. And it leads to wrong patterns. And it leads to false security. So let's close. I want to reflect on one thing. Remember, I told you, all right, we're heading towards this little seed that I planted. And I said, I want you to be asking in your mind as we study. why did Jesus' opponents reject him? And what I hope you saw this morning, so this, this, uh, these two stories, and we'll look at a story next week when the scribes come to Jesus, were all by opponents. What I want us to see is that the passages we studied and the conversations that we studied today were not the real reason they were rejecting Jesus. The scribes weren't rejecting Jesus because of the resurrection. The Pharisees and the Herodians weren't rejecting Jesus because they were really concerned about taxes. The bottom line is that these groups rejected Jesus and his teaching because it ran counter to what they wanted to believe to be true. It ran counter to what they were comfortable with believing about Jesus. It ran counter to what was beneficial to them. And I want you and myself, as we sit here, to be honest. And here's the truth, because you're either in one of two places. Either you don't know yet know Jesus, and in your mind are reasons. There's objections that you have, much like the Pharisees or Herodians or Sadducees. There's objections that you're using objections that you're sharing with others, well, I don't believe in Jesus, or I don't believe in God, and you have your reasons lined up. Or, you are a a believer in Christ, but there's certain parts of the scriptures that you reject. Like what Jesus says, out of ignorance, and out of an unwillingness to believe in the power of God. But here's the fact, the opponents of Jesus still continue today, They haven't gone away. And for those of us who believe in Jesus, there are parts of the scriptures that all of us find hard to accept. And so we accept most of Jesus, but there are a few things, and we'll tell you our quibbles, I don't believe quite about this, and we redefine this little thing. And really what this is, I was doing some research on bias today. I think everybody knows what bias is. We have a certain tendency, proclivity to want to believe certain things. Anybody here ever learned of or heard of confirmation bias? Right? Confirmation bias. There's all kinds of bias that you could look up. Here's what confirmation bias is. According to the internet, which is a very reliable source. Fortunately, I don't preach my sermons from the internet. I preach the word of God and add an illustration from the internet. Now, this is what confirmation bias is. This type of bias refers to the tendency to seek out information that supports something you already believe. And it is particularly pernicious, a subset of cognitive bias, where you only remember the hits or the things you like, And you forget the misses or the things you dislike. Once again, this is not the Bible. This is the internet telling you this. It says this is a flaw in human reasoning. People will cue into things that matter to them. And they dismiss things that don't. And it says this leads to the ostrich effect. It's named like this because we bury our heads in the sand. Internet, not me, not the Bible. We bury our heads in the sand when a subject seeks to inform us with information that we disapprove of. In looking at why we reject Jesus, both of these groups brought questions. And both of these groups used these questions. It's about the resurrection. It's about taxes to Caesar. I don't know what it's about for you, but I know the opponents of Jesus still live and are still actively involved in wanting to reject him. But you need to be honest about them and we need to be honest about ourselves. We don't reject Jesus because we have reasons to reject Jesus. We reject Jesus because of what is actually happening in our hearts. We have a confirmation bias. The world will tell you that. The simplest way I can put this is this we reject Jesus and then we find our reasons. We reject Jesus, and then we find our reasons. It's not because we find reasons and then reject Jesus. You're not going to find reasons in Jesus' teaching. You're not going to find reasons in Jesus' miracles. You're not going to find reasons in the scriptures which point and prophesy to Jesus. You're not going to find reasons in the death and resurrection, the most loving show uh, or, or display of grace and mercy you're not going to find reasons in Jesus himself. You're going to have to find the reasons f- for yourself from your confirmation bias that looks for reasons to reject what you don't want to believe. The ostrich effect. If it happens in other aspects of life and if the internet is writing about it, then folks, I have to believe it's also true when it comes to Jesus. Romans 1:18 says this, and I'll end The biblical truth behind the confirmation bias is this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what happens? What does confirmation bias do? It suppresses truth. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he made. We are without excuse for although, I would put we, we know God, we do not honor him or give him thanks, but instead we choose to become futile in our thinking, our foolish hearts are darkened, we claim to be wise, although we are fools, we exchange the glory of God, the immortal God, for our own human wisdom. I want to end with hope. That's Romans one eighteen. Romans 1.18. Let me read you Romans 1.16. What is the hope? Is there hope for rejection? Absolutely. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You know what confronts us when we reject Jesus? You know what confronts unbelief? There's only one thing, and it is not me having a better argument than you. It is not you giving me your reasons, and me giving you my reasons. I'm not going to want to debate with you. The only thing that will win your heart to understand God is the the power of the gospel. There is another truth that will change your story. And that truth is God has loved you so much he sent his son to die that whoever believes in him, he will give eternal life. Once you believe that, you will begin to understand the reasons I've been using to reject him were lies. But until the gospel confronts you, You will continue using all of those reasons and I will just tell you, just like Jesus confronted the the Sadducees and said, you're wrong, Romans tells us we're wrong. We don't reject Jesus because we have reasons. We don't reject God because we have reasons. We reject him because we choose to believe in our own wisdom. That's the scriptural truth. And I don't say that in an angry, judgmental way. I say that in the most loving way that I can. Today, respond to God's amazing love to you in Jesus Christ and find the reason to live. Let's pray. God, you are good. As we study this passage of Jesus and his opponents, we recognize again, all of us struggle. There's not a single heart in this room, mine included, that doesn't struggle to believe you at your word. There are things about you that we find hard to fully comprehend. Like the Sadducees, God, there's times we operate in ignorance. There's times where we doubt the power of God. But as Paul reminds us, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God to salvation. God, would you open hearts to your great love so that we might respond to you and find the reason to begin to build our life on you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.